Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Okay, welcome. My name is Katie Gorka. I am Director for Civil Society and the American Dialogue at the Heritage Foundation's Boulder Institute. So happy you could be here with us today. We're super excited for this webinar. I want to start by uh, mentioning an article that my colleague Joseph Laconte just published this morning in the Daily Signal. Super important article called Why Some Revolutions Fail. He's talking about the differences between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. In it, he quotes Edmund Burke, the great English statesman who was a champion of American liberty. In his reflections on the revolution in France, Burke warned of political revolutions that despise everything that came before them. And that should ring a bell and sound a little bit like what's happening now with the tearing down of statues. Burke said, people will not look forward to posterity who never look backwards to their ancestors. Today's session is great because we've got two super speakers who spend their time and energy looking back at one of our greatest ancestors, uh, Lincoln, President Lincoln. And so I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, before we start, I just wanna mention a few housekeeping notes. You are all in listen-only mode. Uh, this session will be recorded and it will be accessible within 48 hours. So you'll be able to catch it again or share it with colleagues. We'd like to ask you to submit your questions in the question and answer box, which is on the webinar dashboard. You should see that over to the right of your screen. You can submit your questions anytime. It won't disturb the speakers. And then uh, Angela will tee those up as we get to that session. And now with that, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, Angela Saylor. Angela is the Vice President of the Fulner Institute at the Heritage Foundation. Angela, over to you. Thank you so much, Katie, thank you. Well, again, welcome to our webinar entitled Our American Story, The Power of Trial and Triumph. Many Americans are asking, why should Americans learn about our US history and our government, especially in a time where we see uh, different people on the street and, and we hear a cry out from our youth to cancel our culture? Well, the answer is simple for many, and it's so that we are an informed um, body of citizens prepared to engage in civil society. And those are the essential ingredients for preserving the American Republic. Unfortunately, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni's most recent survey of core curricula of over 1,100 colleges and universities across the country found that only 18% of institutions are requiring students to take a single course in US history or government. And unfortunately, the recent survey by the National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as NAEP, shows about 24% of eighth grade students performing at above the proficient levels for the NAEP civics exams which is very similar to the same low scores from 2014. Unfortunately, in 2015, Hello. seven score and 10 years 
after Abraham Lincoln's assassination, only half of the American public could correctly identify when the Civil War took place. When asked to match Lincoln with the famous phrases from the Gettysburg Address, the government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth, more respondents chose a passage from the Declaration of Independence than the lines from Lincoln's pen. Lincoln and much of our legacy and much of his legacy is being lost to the ages. Here at the Heritage Foundation, we are working to safeguard the sanctity of the American idea and our history and to exhibit its validity and relevance to all Americans, especially to those who have lost their confidence that our nation is the best place of hope, opportunity, and community for all Americans. Again, thank you for joining us today for this incredibly important webinar on our American story and the power of trial and triumph. Our featured guests are prepared to reaffirm, illuminate, and explain how they inspire the study of history and more specifically, the study of Abraham Lincoln. I want to welcome to you all uh, our featured panelists. We have both uh, Dr. Lucas Morrell, who is professor of politics at Washington Lee University. He serves on the U.S. Semi-Quincentennial Commission and is the author of Lincoln and the American Founding. We also have with us Dr. Cranerwither. He is the president of an organization called Speak Easy Ideas and an expert specializing in American political thought, classical political philosophy, and political and the political economy. And we are going to play a short video before you hear Dr. Craner Withers' presentation. So I'm going to turn it now to the video, take a look at the screen, and then you'll hear from Dr. Craner Wither. This year, Speakeasy Ideas tried an experiment. We launched three social clubs in Colorado, each of which met once a month and featured a year-long close study of the Federalist Papers. The responses have been overwhelming requests to offer more, so that's what we're doing. I'm Dr. Tom Cranowitter, president of Speakeasy Ideas, and I invite you to join us for a 10-month program in 2020, Tragedy and Triumph, the Story of Slavery in the United States. The American founding ignited the greatest anti-slavery movement in history. Through blood, sweat, and tears, Americans did more than any nation ever had to bring a swift end to slavery. Yet some people today want to diminish those sacrifices and accomplishments. Revisionists, motivated by political agendas, are reframing the history of slavery, teaching young Americans that their country and their constitution are irredeemably racist unworthy of their respect. Nonsense. Tragedy and Triumph will walk the audience through the tragedy of slavery in the United States and the heroic efforts to abolish it. Join us once a month beginning in January in the cozy Soil Dove Theater in Denver as we explore the origins of American exceptionalism and goodness by remembering what Americans did to get rid of slavery and why. Tragedy and Triumph you're going to fall in love with your country all over again. 
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for uh, carving out a piece of your day to, to spend some time with us. In the in the few moments that I have allocated, I want to talk a little bit about the the trials and triumphs that came before us, uh, where, where things went astray, and the amazing opportunities we have right now. I think we can all agree when we look around the United States, it's kind of a scary time. It certainly is a strange time. It's unlike anything most of us have seen in living memory. And yet, if there is a moment when the ideas of freedom, the ideas of the American founding, the, the ideas enshrined in the Declaration of Independence are important, it's right now more than ever. What an incredible opportunity we have. To make the most of that opportunity, I wanna give us just, just a little bit of context, a little bit of framework here. And, and since we only have a few minutes, I'm gonna I'm gonna paint in really broad strokes, and and yet what I'm about to present to you is very much true. Let's start with the the actual American founding, right? In in in, in 1776, right? We have the actual American founding. I'm, I'm talking about the real people, the individuals there, all of whom were flawed and imperfect. The regime they created was flawed and imperfect. And yet, that group of, of flawed, imperfect people, they put forth an idea, the American idea. And I wanna spend just a moment here talking about the idea because the idea, the idea was perfect. It is still perfect today. The idea, what, what Lincoln called an abstract truth applicable to all human beings everywhere. The idea is that every one of us, every person, we are a, each of us is a compound being. Each of us, and what that means is, each of us has a physical body, right? The, the physical material out of which we're made, uh, our, our skin, hair, bones, blood, organs, things like that, the physical matter. We all have a physical being and we all have a metaphysical being. An immaterial part. People used to call it the soul. Some people now call it the mind. It's the free part of us that thinks and makes choices. It's the part of us that chooses what to do with our body. It means by nature, by our, our human nature, each one of us should be governing ourselves. Isn't that an amazing concept? It's so simple, and yet politically it's it's revolutionary. It threatens kings and emperors and monarchs and pharaohs and Caesars. This idea that every human being, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what language they speak, regardless of their religious beliefs, regardless of what historical era they live in, every human being has a rightful claim to their own person, to their own property, to their own individual freedom, to their own life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as the founders said in that declaration. That idea, that idea, it's not only the solution to every injustice, it's the standard by which we can identify injustices, right? Racial injustices, uh, sexist injustices, any kind of injustice, um, assault, vandalism, theft, rape, murder. Why are those things wrong? They're wrong because this idea is right because every human being does in fact have a natural right to, to their own freedom. It means when governments, when laws, when policies, when regulations violate 
someone's property rights or restrict or take away someone's natural freedom, those policies, those governments, those laws, they're wrong. This idea is beautiful. And these group of people in 1776, they fell short of this idea, but they made tremendous strides. They were aiming for this idea. Foremost, they recognized the problem of slavery. Slavery is it's not only incompatible with this idea, it's a direct blatant violation of it. They knew before the ink was dried on the Declaration that in order to live up to their own ideas, they got to get rid of slavery. And this unleashed what, what I have called in many of my writings, including a, a short little piece I just did for the Heritage Foundation last week. The United States was, is the greatest anti-slavery movement in all of human history. From the moment they found a regime within slightly more than four score and seven years, to use Lincoln's famous dating at the Gettysburg Cemetery, the Americans restrict slavery to where it is and eventually abolish it at tremendous cost. They are making huge strides trying to reach to their goal. And then we take up, something happens. We take a big left turn, and it's called the progressive movement or progressivism. Immediately after the Civil War, a group of thinkers, of intellectuals, of academics, they say, oh, this American idea is wrong. That should not be our goal. Rather, we should head in the direction of total central planning, a large bureaucratic administrative state that controls, that regulates everything. We took this, we, we, we took this turn starting in the 1870s, in the 1880s. Progressivism is now very old. It's more than a century old. And we are far down this path. And here's our, the work, the effort, the challenge, the opportunity in front of us is to turn things culturally, politically, back in the direction of this right and true idea. That's the work that we're doing at Speakeasy Ideas. It's the work that we're doing. We've, we've uh, uh, branched off into an entirely new venture called the Vino and Veritas Society. I encourage you to check it out. You can find our website at vinoandveritassociety.com. We're creating chapters of ordinary citizens who are learning about these things, who practice communicating these ideas and the policies that line with them, and then broadcast that to the rest of the world. We're tired of simply responding to or reacting to the national conversation. It's time that we actually start to shape and spark the national conversation. All of that has to be done if we're gonna make this big important cultural turn and get back to the self-evident truths enshrined in the Declaration and celebrated by Lincoln in his famous speech at Gettysburg. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cranor Wither. Uh, I just I want to ask you just a couple of questions before we go to our next speaker. And mm -hmm. as you are um, working with adults, um, there's something very unique about your approach in, in terms of where you do some of your sessions. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that and the magic of intersecting the, 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 the foundational in, information into the culture? Yeah, so so we are really focused on a on a cultural transformation. I, I, I mean, look, the, the bottom line is uh, a James Madison today, right? The author of the Constitution 
probably couldn't get elected to the local dog catcher, much less anything else, because there's not a big demand. Why is it that politicians aren't out there giving serious talks about the Constitution? Because there's not a big demand for it. When we have a popular cultural demand for constitutional government, we're going to get politicians uh, trying to rein in the government back within the limits of the Constitution. That requires a cultural transformation. One of the ways that we're doing this, it's right there in the name of this new project we've we've unveiled, the Vino and Veritas Society, right? Everyone knows Veritas is truth. This is about the truth. It's about these true ideas. But the Vino part, the Vino represents getting together in social settings, drinking some wine, having a good time, socializing in a fun way. It's a social club where people come and talk. They get to know each other. They actually look forward to it. And while they're interacting in the social club, they're learning some things. Every chapter meeting has a little case study that highlights the ideas of freedom and, and ways we can change policies to, to align with that idea of freedom. And then there's more. What, what they do then is they practice talking, debating, uh, being persuasive, how to make appeals. Most of what has happened with the freedom movement, the conservative movement, over the last 70 years, most of the communication is all one way, right? Smart people say, here's, here's what I know about freedom. Take my content, take my information. The problem is the audience who's listening or reading, they don't get a chance to ask questions. They don't get a chance to practice communicating to themselves. That's why we're forming these social groups, these chapters, so that people can actually practice with each other and then help coach each other as they, as they write essays, as they post material on social media, as they create memes or videos or podcasts, whatever kind of content they want to create, they are exercising and practicing getting better and better. My goal is to have thousands, eventually millions of pieces of content on, on a related subject being broadcast out at the same time, which, which is a way that we can actually shape the conversation, control the direction of the conversation, rather than always reacting to it. Wonderful. I mean, the the energy, I've, I've seen some of the videos and it's just absolutely incredible um, how, how you're turning people out. And what would you say the demographic is in terms of age? So we have this big spectrum in terms of our, our audience, big cross in ages, uh, men, women, people coming from all different backgrounds, all, di all different colors, all different looks. We're marketing this not, we don't say this is a conservative thing. We don't say this is a constitutional thing. We say this is going to be a really fun night out where you're going to meet some great people. You're going to get to eat some good food, drink some wine, and, and you're going to be entertained. You're going to learn something. We're marketing almost similar to the way you would market something like a comedy show. We have this story. This story is so filled with drama. It is so filled with all kinds of colorful people and personalities, even the bad guys in this story are really fascinating to, to learn about. And what we conservatives, we, we have just kind of sucked at the, in the recent decades at bringing this amazing story alive. So we bring the story alive. And what we find is people walk away happy, smiling. They go and tell their friends, come with me next time. I know it sounds weird. You're going to come hear a presentation about the United States, but you're going to love it. And our audiences are growing. 
All right. Well, Dr. Cranerwether, we're going to come back to you uh, in a few minutes uh, to join into a, a discussion also with Dr. Lucas Morrell, but first we're going to hear from him. So ladies and gentlemen, I, I thank you. You know, nothing's perfect and sometimes technology can go awry on us. And we've had a little bit of some little technical difficulties, but we now have Dr. Lucas Morrell with us. And as I said before, he's professor of politics at Washington Lee University. And he is also the author of Lincoln and the American Founding. So I am gonna introduce him to you now and turn the floor over to Dr. Lucas Morrell. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on your program. Uh, wonderful to listen to my good friend, uh, Professor Tom uh, Cranowitter. We used to teach back uh, in the prehistoric uh, Paleolithic era. So good to see you again and good to be here with Heritage always. Uh, thanks for inviting me to speak about my new book, Lincoln and the American Founding. Um, why did I write this book? I wrote this book because I've been teaching Lincoln for over a quarter century. Boy, that really does date me. And um, I love Lincoln because I love the founding. And I believe that Lincoln is the greatest uh, defender uh, of the founding next to the founders themselves. So I'm just going to walk you through uh, a basic outline of my book and then why I think it's an important read for us uh, in our times today. Um, I argue something fairly basic, which is that the most important things we know from Lincoln, uh, the most important influence on his thought and practice as an engaged citizen and as, of course, our most iconic president, are the things he learned from the American founding. And so the first chapter is about the founder of founders, the indispensable, truly indispensable man, and that was George Washington. So what was it that, that Lincoln learned from Washington's words and Washington's character as he led uh, the movement to separate from Great Britain and start something truly new, as they called it, a novus ordo seclorum, a new order for the ages. Chapter two, the longest chapter, no surprise, is not about the American founding in terms of a founder, but a founding document. The document that Lincoln quoted most often in the 1850s and 60s was our original charter, the Declaration of Independence, of course, the rationale for uh, uh, separating from Great Britain and starting our self-governing regime, uh, which was uh, agreed to on July 4th, 1776. So in this chapter, I step us through four or five key principles from the Declaration of Independence that Lincoln brought up over and over and over again. Most important is the central idea of the regime, as he put it, uh, human equality, all men are created equal. And Lincoln believed that the founders believed all meant all, male, female, black, white, you name it for everyone, for all time. The second principle is the principle of individual rights, that you have these rights as your birthright as a human being. It doesn't matter what your race is, color, sex, nation of origin, ethnicity, none of that. You are born with rights by nature. We call those natural rights. Uh, third, we talk about, from the Declaration, government by consent of the government. I consider consent sort of the flip side of the equality coin. If it's true that no one is born the natural ruler of anyone but himself, as Tom uh, mentioned earlier, uh, then that means that the only way you could tell somebody what to do is by their permission, government by consent. And then the fourth principle, a principle Lincoln claimed would be the, the principle to liberate the world was the principle of the right of revolution. This isn't a constitutional or legal or political right. It is a natural right of any people. You don't even have to be in the majority. When you believe your government 
is acting tyrannically and things are so bad, it's not a change of law, but a change of regime that's called for, uh, that's the right of revolution, the natural right of revolution. And then a fifth principle that I draw, uh, that I believe Lincoln drew from those principles, what he called the right to rise, or um, what he called uh, every person has should have a, a fair chance uh, in life, uh, the right to self-improvement, in fact, the duty for, uh, to self-improvement. So we've got a chapter on Washington, a chapter on the Declaration of Independence, and if the Declaration spells out the ends, the purposes of the American regime, it is the Constitution that spells out its means. What are the structures? What are the mechanisms? What are the levers of freedom for a self-governing people in order to achieve the ends and aims spelled out in the Declaration? You look to the Constitution. And Lincoln was a great um, uh, respecter and reverer, if you will, of the Constitution. He didn't want anybody to mess with the Constitution. And of course, the only time that he finally gets around to encouraging amending the Constitution is when he lobbies for the passage of the 13th Amendment. So we've got Lincoln in Washington, Lincoln in the Declaration, Lincoln in the Constitution. And if you're still with me, you realize, hmm, we're talking about the Constitution and the Declaration. There seems to be something back in those times that interfered with. In fact, the founders believed this was the grand contradiction, what Lincoln called the, the great behemoth of danger, and that was slavery. What he will call in his great sublime second inaugural address, uh, the, what he will call American slavery. For him, it wasn't simply a Southern institution. He said it was localized in the Southern part of the country, but it was American in the sense that all Americans tragically benefited from racial slavery. And so what did Lincoln learn from the founders about dealing with what I call a pre-existing condition? Slavery was not created on July 4, 1776. It was refuted on that date. Uh, it is, as, as Tom pointed out, the grand anti-slavery statement of a people, the first time in human history that a people decided to form a government on the basis of equality, a refutation, a contradiction of human slavery. They didn't wait to get rid of slavery to start the machine, the machinery of self-government that they believed in time would get rid of it. As Lincoln put it, put it on the course of ultimate extinction. So I've got a pretty substantive chapter on Lincoln and slavery. What did he learn from the founders about the best peaceful political way of weaning ourselves off of that awful institution? Every founder to a man believed that slavery was wrong, not wrong for him, wrong for everyone. Even Jefferson believed that. Why they didn't get rid of it right away, there were obstacles, and we can get into that in the Q&A. So then my final chapter is a chapter on Lincoln and original intent. This is a concept that's been become more, if not popular, uh, more we've attended to this more uh, when we're starting to think about um, how to deal with our current times and our current problems. Um, maybe we ought to take a look at what the founders believed was the best way to approach it. Uh, Lincoln was no blind follower of the founding. Uh, he saw things back there, like slavery, that he thought, you know what, we ought not to hold on to this for very long. Uh, but he did believe that there were things in the founding that were worth holding on to, worth preserving, worth conserving. And it was, uh, in his mind, he says, those are the things, those are the intentions we follow, not simply because they're old, not because they were first, but because they were good, they were right, and they were true. And we need to reflect on these things and allow them to inform our uh, situation today. So what are the, the, the quick takeaways or lessons here? 
rule by consent instead of rule by the mob. Uh, we've, we've seen someone, you know, the mayor of Minneapolis, uh, who is no conservative politically, as far as I can gather, we saw the futility of him trying to reason with someone who had a megaphone demanding that he defund the police. And when he said, no, I, I'm not in favor of abolishing the police, they, in no uncertain terms, including an explicit, uh, expletive, said, get the you-know-what out of here. And in my opinion, he was lucky to get out of there alive. That was a very hostile crowd. And it shows you you can't have a Socratic dialogue uh, with a mass assembly. Even Martin Luther King Jr. knew that. So we need to remind ourselves what rule by consent means. Rule um, not by the mob, but by a, a, by and in a forum whereby deliberation and reason, rather than emotion and passion, dictates and paves the way for actual decisions politically regarding how to solve the problems that are in front of us. Uh, Lincoln said, let us have faith that right makes might. It was his belief that politics wasn't simply ruled by the majority. It wasn't simply ruled by the numerically uh, uh, numerous. That the majority must rule, yes, but it must rule always knowing that it must respect the rights of the individual. As uh, Associate Justice Clarence Thomas once put it, the most important minority in this country is the minority of one, the minority that is the individual, because each individual has rights that government is bound to respect and ruling majorities need to remember that. So I think we're at a time that we're losing faith uh, in these American principles, or at least questioning them. We're confused about these institutions. How important is the rule of law? Um, we're valuing passion and even righteous indignation above the reason and deliberation that's necessary to come up with truly good, useful, practical, prudent solutions to our problems. Without this foundation, I believe our diversity, which we make a lot of, our diversity won't be a benefit to us, but put us on the path to further division, conflict, and chaos. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to invite Dr. Cranawither back to the screen uh, to join us in a discussion. And as he's coming on, I want to remind you that there's a question box where we welcome you to um, uh, submit your questions uh, to our to our featured speakers so that uh, in a few minutes we can begin to answer those questions and get you more directly involved in the conversation. Both of you are doing incredible work. Uh, you know, you've got this book, this fantastic book that people can read about Lincoln and you've described um, the, the relevance across history and, 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 and the connectivity um, to the founding. And, and Tom, you are doing, you know, incredible, uh, bold work with, with intersecting um, the, 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 our history with, in a fun social environment where it seems to be sticking. We just did a, a, a survey, the Heritage Foundation did, our, our Center for Education Policy directed by Lindsey Burke. And there was a question, um, that we found an interesting response to by school board members that said seven out of 10 school board members believe that the founding ideas of liberty and equality were actually true when they were first written. And as we listen to the news and we see social media, you would think that that data would come back differently. And so the question I have for both of you and the discussion I wanna have here for a moment is if, if people are able to, on a survey, to articulate 
that they believe in the founding, that 1776 is the date, right? And they believe that we, that liberty and equality was deeply rooted uh, in the foundation of, of this nation as it was born. Why are we, why are we in such a tension with projects like the New York Times 1619 project? And why has the nation allowed the workings and teachings of Howard Zinn uh, to, to just find itself creeping through the veins of, of secondary education? So um, Lucas, I'll go to you first. Well, I think what's enticing about the 1619 project by the New York Times Magazine and New York Times uh, proper is it's enticing even to good-meaning, well-meaning people today because it's an acknowledgement at minimum that something truly bad, horrific, and subversive of the genuine American idea of equality, rights, government by consent. Um, it's an acknowledgement that slavery was a problem that we had for an awful lot of time, an awful long time. It antedated the formation of the regime. But unfortunately, they think in order for us to acknowledge uh, potential legacy effects, the ways that slavery and segregation in their minds still affect um, the polity today, they have to make it a bigger deal than it actually was. They have to make it the American idea. And so you have with Nicole Hannah-Jones the, the audacious claim that America, what Tom mentioned earlier, which was the genuine article of Americanness, equality, um, she has to make slavery, not the blemish, but the DNA, she has to make slavery and white bigotry and racism the American idea. And it's, it's, it should be patently obvious that this is incorrect precisely because if it were true that the, that the most fundamental principle about America is not equality, but racism, then the Declaration of Independence would be impossible. Why would a nation of slaveholders, and they didn't all own slaves, but if slavery was so pervasive and what undergirded slavery was white bigotry, if color consciousness in that horrible way was so pervasive, why on earth would they declare independence on the basis of equality, individual rights, government by consent of the governed? It would have been inconceivable as it was for most of the world. In fact, all of the world at that time. So for me, that's, it, it doesn't make sense. If we even grant her premise, yes, America was founded in 1619 and it was founded by white bigots who wanted to enslave so-called inferior races. What possessed them in 1776 to declare independence from Great Britain? Not simply because their rights as Englishmen were being infringed, but they shifted to an argument of natural rights. What on earth possessed them to do that if racism was you know, deeply ingrained in our DNA? Doesn't make sense. So, so Tom, just picking up right where he left off, um, yeah. you are working with people in a more relaxed setting. And I, mean, I, I think a lot of people can follow the intellectual argument, but I think what we're starting to see is there's such an emotional component here. And it becomes, it's like the magic, the answer or the miracle answer is how do you penetrate the emotion that's wrapped around the narratives in order to penetrate and let the, the truth and the light shine through. 
I have the answer for you, Angela. We do a little bit of emotional jujitsu, right? So, so, so when when all this passion and anger and heated emotions are aimed in one way, we turn it back the other way. Here, here's an example: 1619. Ask a question. What dis truly distinctive, unique, rare thing happened in 1619? And the answer is nothing. Nothing different happened. You know what happened in 1619? What was happening before and what continued to happen later? Human beings were buying other human beings and shipping them around and enslaving them. And almost no one stepped back to think, maybe this is wrong. This institution had been going on for thousands of years and only a handful of sort of learned philosophic minds had ever questioned whether slavery was wrong. Then we get to 1776 and these Americans, these, I want to emphasize this, highly flawed, highly imperfect people. I, I just watched the, uh, the the Hamilton musical the other night uh, on, on, you can now get it from streaming, you know, through your TV. And they highlight the, the truth of how flawed Hamilton was and many of the other, you have these scurrilous people like Aaron Burra. These flawed people said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that every human being is equal in their right to govern themselves to be free. And it unleashed the greatest anti-slavery movement in all of, there, there is nothing that compares to it. It took, just, just to give you a little reference here, it took the English 900 years to start thinking, maybe this institution is wrong. Maybe we should take some steps to get rid of it. Uh, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, for all their greatness, they could build, you know, they could build aqueducts and do all these great sculptures. You know what they didn't do? They didn't say slavery's wrong. Let's 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 launch a public effort to get rid of this institution. The Americans do that. Now this leads to question: Why? Why all this bashing on America? Why why this attempt to change the date of America? I'm going to come back here to this this curve, this thing that happens after the Civil War that I'm calling the the progressive movement, the the the, the beginning of progressivism. They and I'm going to offer here kind of a sympathetic view. These were young thinking minds in the aftermath of the Civil War, and they looked around at all the destruction and death and horror of the Civil War, and they concluded that the founding ideas, those ideas in the Declaration of Independence, those ideas that are the platform of the Constitution, must be wrong. And so they were looking to reshape, recreate, refound the United States on a, on a new model. And their model was a model of total central planning, have a bunch of experts, scientists, really smart people make all of our decisions for us, plan out our lives, see who needs what. This will later give rise to ideas like entitlement. Certain groups are entitled to certain things. So we got to divide citizens into groups and decide who, from whom are we going to take and to whom are we going to give and what, what are we going to give and how much are we going to give. And the biggest obstacle to this progressive project, the single biggest obstacle, is the United States Constitution. It stands in the way because it doesn't it doesn't provide for a, a big central planning bureaucratic state. And so what we are what we've seen for decades now, and it's becoming more intense, more acute, is any kind of effort to undermine the credibility of the founding, undermine the credibility of the constitution, of the people who wrote it, undermine the credibility of the ideas upon which America was founded. All of these attacks are meant to delegitimize the foundation 
of the greatest anti-slavery movement in history, of the greatest experiment in self-government that we've ever seen in, in, in history. And, and I wanna make it really clear here, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying the founders were perfect. I'm not saying the people who came after. I'm just saying it's better than anything that's ever been tried in history by anyone else. Well, you know, I, I, I appreciate your comments so much, and I, I think it segues nicely into us talking about the content of the 1619 curriculum. Um, and so, you know, we've seen some surveys that say a lot of teachers are nervous about this curriculum because they think it's going to cause an anxiety among children, both black and white. Um, and we see how um, there are simulations in the, the curriculum that, that mock a slave auction as a game. Um, we see the alignment with Common Core, the Common Core curriculum. And we see, you know, kind of the hit on capitalism of, of connecting everything back to slavery and in terms of an oppressive state. And I, I would think that even for your worst enemy, you'd want them looking into the future to see hope and opportunity versus carrying a burden and a load of oppression into what their future could be. And so, you know, both of you have, both of you teach, have taught um, college students, you know, and, and you, you know how the questions come. They, 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 there's lots of pushback and, um challenging from one point to the next point as you're trying to really lay it out but back to your point on uh not making the founders deity i think that's a way we could put it you know that that they were human beings tell us how in your teachings the two of you how you've um been able to overcome that and the detriment of a curriculum like 1619 that's then pushing back and perpetuating the oppressive state. Okay, Lucas, well, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'll say briefly here, uh, you're right that students arrive, um, your high school teachers, their seniors are my first year students, okay? So I'm not too far away. In fact, I substitute taught in high school uh, before I went to grad school. Uh, so, and I work a lot with high school teachers across the country. I work with a number of organizations with highly talented, highly motivated, um, good intentioned, uh, just wonderful, wonderful teachers. Um, and so, so I don't blame them. They are interested in the latest scholarship. They want to do, they, ha they are serious about their craft. And that's why they listen to guys like Tom and me and others at various workshops on their own time in the summers, they want to learn more history. So 1619 Project comes along and it's produced by, you know, unfortunately, the, the newspaper of record, uh, uh, the New York Times, and they think, well, this, this must be the real deal, this, because it's the latest deal, right? This is progressivism in all caps, right? Because it's the newest information, it has to be the most accurate. And that's what's so problematic. They don't realize that that essay was written by a journalist, not a historian. And although she claims that it was vetted by historians, she's been very reticent to tell us who all these people are. And one of them, in fact, said, look, I pointed out a pretty clear error in it, and they ran it anyway. And so what, it, what the teachers need to know about that project is it has an agenda. I don't have a problem with an agenda. Just don't present it as history. Even Nicole Hannah-Jones has had to say repeatedly in public, on stage, 
it's not a history. It's not a history. That's her way of trying to justify, well, you know, I'm just a journalist and, you know, I dabble and, and I see what's out there. And, you know, I really, what I want to do, and she's been emphatic about this. She says that you cannot leave after reading all of this stuff we put together and not think that there is a debt. Something is owed. And now she's championing, right? Her latest, her latest, I'm sorry, her latest essay was about reparations. No surprise. If slavery is so pervasive and endemic, even though it's gone, its effects are still with us, then man, you've gotta take, you've gotta pay off people today for damage allegedly that was done to them centuries earlier. So to these high school teachers, I say, I, this is an invitation to do your history better. And this is a country that was born of debate, born of discussion, born of arguments. And I welcome that. I'm like, let's get into the arguments. Let's see what Jefferson and Washington and Franklin and Hamilton and those guys down from Georgia and South Carolina who were holding up the show at the Constitutional Convention, let's see what those debates were about. Let's, I'm not putting words in their mouths. You read it. And that's what's, what's so frustrating about the essay is so many errors, so many half-truths, so many caricatures, so much of what was left out to make it look like this is the real story. She's quoting Clay and claiming it's Lincoln. She, you wouldn't even know James Madison was at the Constitutional Convention from her essay for crying out loud. So that's what's so frustrating is so how unhistorical and how so polemical and pro propagandistic the 1619 Project is. But now we've got Oprah Winfrey who's going to make a movie about it. So th this is intention. The intention here is to control and shape our culture. And if you have that, you have the future. Tom, it, it, Tom it, it, as, you, as you jump into this discussion, we've got a question in the queue that I think you can tie together in, in your response. And it's, in your opinion, or why in your opinion, is America the greatest country? And I think that, um, I think that's a great uh, cobbling together into the discussion. It's, it, it's, it's perfect. Here's why. If you measure the United States against the standard of perfection, Perfection, absolute perfect. If you if you compare the United States to something like God, the United States falls short. What I find far more useful and valuable and revealing is to compare the United States to other real people, other real regimes. This is what uh, uh, what's her name, Hannah Nicole Jones, leaves out in her essay. The I'm going to just give a little bit of comparative um, background here. The, slavery is thousands of years old. In fact, so I, I'm persuaded by the historiography that slavery goes back to prehistoric times, even before there was records of, of history. It's really old. It became particularly nefarious when the when the sciences of shipbuilding and sailing became good enough in the 15th century when you could start shipping cargo across the ocean pretty reliably. That made the the the, the transoceanic uh, trade of slaves, a viable business proposition. That launched the, the greatest international slave trade in, in history, the Atlantic slave trade, which lasted for four centuries, 400 years. In the course of 400 years, 12 and a half million Africans were sold into slavery. And how did that come to be? It came to be because tribes like the Ashanti, the Congo, the Dahomey, these are African tribes specialized in raiding other African tribes, kidnapping, stealing human beings, men, women, and children. They would bind their hands. They would march them 
to uh, slave markets where they were sold on the west coast of slavery with European slave traders and slave ships sitting out, you know, their ships anchored a few hundred shores away. Here's the important point. Of those 12 and a half million Africans sold into slavery, every single one of them was a slave as they stood on African soil. Before they ever boarded a ship, they had already been kidnapped, they had already been bound up, they were already enslaved. And a question to ask of all those African slavers, and there were many of them, how many of them prior to 1776 said all men are created equal? How many of them created a regime with the goal of equal protection of the laws for the equal natural rights of everyone who, and the answer is none, nobody did that. Nobody had done that anywhere. The Americans are the first to attempt this in this highly flawed world where there's slavery all over. Compare the slavers in America, like people like Thomas Jefferson. He was a slaver. He owned slaves. Compare the American slavers to slavers everywhere else and ask who did the most to get rid of slavery and to establish a self-governing, decent, just regime. Who did more than the Americans? And I would put forth Nobody, nobody did more than the Americans, which is why I would argue the, the United States is the, the best regime in history and the greatest anti-slavery movement in history. Well, you all are not gonna believe this. We are running out of time. Um, I feel like the discussion is just getting heated and we could go on for another 15, 20 minutes. But since we are, I as, as we close out, um, and again, we, we wanted to put a focus here on Lincoln today, and Lincoln comes under attack by 1619. So in your closing uh, one minute remark as we, as we begin to wind up, talk about the one myth about Lincoln that you think is necessary for everyone to get in their heads straight, straightened out in their minds around the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln being a racist, and what he had to go through in order to navigate um, the, the, the power of the federal government versus the state over slavery. Uh, let's start with you, Lucas. One minute for Lincoln, good grief. My book is short, but it's not that short. Anyway, um, good luck, Lucas. <laughs> I would, the number one thing I want people to see about Lincoln is that what he contributed to his country as an engaged citizen, and as an elected official is a work of reclamation. He wanted them to reclaim, to regain, to uh, recover an older way of thinking about self-government. And it was a way he learned from the founding. And it was that way of thinking, that way of speaking, that way of acting as self-governing citizens, as truly independent uh, and, and free citizens that led him to, determined that slavery needed to go when he was a president during the Civil War. What she leaves out of her essay are all the things that Lincoln did on behalf of black Americans that he made part of preserving an America for all Americans. And so she somehow says the war ended, somehow says the 13th Amendment was passed, somehow says emancipation occurred and never gives credit to Lincoln. She thinks Lincoln has more in common with Chief Justice Roger Taney of the most notorious Supreme Court case in American history, the Dred Scott case of 1857, than he has with Martin Luther King Jr. 
and Frederick Douglass, who both knew better about the greatness of this regime. By the way, if, if I'm, my memory serves, neither is mentioned in her essay. Gee, I wonder why that is. And so for Lincoln, Lincoln the racist, Lincoln the reluctant emancipator, all of those things, they can be easily disproven by actually reading what he said and watching what he did at great personal and political costs on behalf of black Americans. Best assessment by contemporary is Frederick Douglass's 1876 oration in memory of Abraham Lincoln. Read all of it. Not just the part where he says he's emphatically the white man's president, but the part where he says when it came to saving this country and black people, he was swift, zealous, radical, and determined. That's Frederick Douglass. Tom, over to you. I, I, I'm going to just add a little piece to what Lucas said. The other problem in that essay by Hannah Nicole Jones, she, she completely gets wrong. Uh, influential people like John C. Calhoun. Calhoun was the greatest apologist, the greatest defender for slavery in American history. And you know what he said about the Declaration? He said Jefferson and the other founders actually believed that black people have the same equal rights as all other people, and therefore they were stupid. They were wrong. <laughs> Calhoun understands exactly what the founders meant and rejected it. I'm going to real quickly just address the, the one of the most persistent nefarious myths about Lincoln that he didn't actually believe black people have the same natural right to freedom as others. Um, here's the context. Democrats like Stephen A. Douglas were playing the race card in a big heavy way. Remember the Republican Party that Lincoln became part of had one goal, stop the spread of slavery out to new territories. That was it. Stop slavery from spreading. So what Douglas and the Democrats would do is say, oh, these Republicans, they want to marry and sleep with Negroes. They want Negroes sitting on juries and judging your rights. They want Negroes voting. All these radical things for the time. So Lincoln repeatedly says, right now, that's not what I'm proposing. I, I don't want to sleep and marry Negroes. I don't, I don't want a, a Negroes sitting on our juries. I'm just asking, can we stop slavery from spreading? The emphasis that many people like Hannah Nicole Jones focus on is him saying, I'm not right now supporting voting rights for, for black people. I'm just trying to stop the spread of slavery. And they say, see, he didn't actually care about the equal, equal rights of black people. No, he totally does. He understands his, his cultural context right there. He can't even get accomplished the, the little tiny goal of stopping slavery from spreading. He's not going to try to bite off something bigger like saying, Let, let's go make sure blacks can vote when they're still enslaved in a big chart chunk of the country. Wow. Thank you both, Dr. Lucas Morrell, Dr. Thomas Cranawither. We have so enjoyed having you today. And we, we're going to ask you to come back. We've got more to talk about. This is a highly charged, highly emotional, highly sensitive and important subject. Uh, and your wisdom and your scholarship is greatly appreciated. We are um, wanting to thank each and every one of you for participating in this webinar and want you to know that this is a three-part series. And in August, we will be back with Dr. Mary Graber, who wrote the book Debunking Howard Zinn, and Dr. Alan Gelzo, who is a professor and at Princeton uh, University, and he's also one of our visiting scholars here at the Heritage Foundation. So I hate to have to say goodbye, but I'm gonna turn it over to Katie Gorka to give us our house cleaning out. And again, gentlemen, thank you so much for your insight. We so appreciate you. So I just wanna thank our 
speakers again, encourage you all, look, I got my copy yesterday, encourage you all to buy Dr. Morell's book. I'm actually gonna be giving it to my siblings. It's a great thing to do. Give it to people that you know, share the knowledge about our founding. It's so important. Um, as, as this session ends, a brief survey is gonna pop up afterwards. We would be so grateful if you could just fill that out. It really helps us to deliver the best programming that we can. As I mentioned, the recording of this event will post within 48 hours. And finally, I invite you to visit our website at heritage.org forward slash events to enjoy more webinars like this one. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone.